This episode of Safe Space Radio is brought to you by the Lerner Foundation and listeners like you. This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space Radio, a show about the subjects we would struggle with less if we could talk about them more. Today is the fourth show in our series on the Maine Wabanaki State Child Welfare Truth and Reconciliation Commission. The TRC focuses on what has happened to Wabanaki children and families since 1978 after the passage of the Indian Child Welfare Act, or ICWA. It is specifically centered on the state of Maine's practice of removing Native children from their homes and placing them with white families. Prior to that, generations of young Native American children had been forcibly taken from their families and placed in Christian boarding schools. Today I'll be speaking with Sandy Whitehawk, one of the five commissioners of the TRC. Sandy is Shachangu Lakota, an enrolled member of the Rosebud Sioux Tribe and a United States Navy veteran. She and her husband George live in St. Paul, Minnesota, where she runs the First Nations Repatriation Institute, an organization devoted to helping First Nations people impacted by foster care or adoption to return home, reconnect, and reclaim their identity. The Institute also serves as a resource to enhance the knowledge and skills of practitioners who serve First Nations people. Sandy was out-adopted by a white missionary family when she was 18 months old. Welcome to Safe Space Radio, Sandy. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I'm excited to be here. I want to start by asking you really to tell us your personal story. I understand that you currently are a commissioner for the Maine Wabanaki State Child Welfare Truth and Reconciliation Commission, but... I know you bring so much to this personally from your own experience of being adopted out to a white family, and I wondered if you could start by telling me that, about why that happened and what that was like for you. Sure. Well, I was born on the Rosebud Reservation in South Dakota in 1953. Rosebud's located in the middle bottom of the state. That time that I was born was a period when when they looked at families who were having a hard time financially and struggling uh, with other issues that are embedded in in that kind of poverty, uh, they didn't really seek to help the family, but they uh, sought to remove the children. And they removed us so systematically that eventually a law had to be passed with the intent to preserve the Indian family called the Indian Child Welfare Act. But back to my being born on the reservation, um, I was with my family till I was 18 months old when I was taken. I was placed with a white missionary family and I was always told they answered the call to uh, work with the Indians. What that meant was for them to um, evangelize the natives, convert them to Christianity, and what the church did, which many churches did back then, is they uh, were used to find families who were struggling and children were removed from there, which is how um, my adoption took place. They really believed. My mom, adoptive mom, always told me that there was a reason why that they came to the reservation, that I would not have survived, I would have had a horrible life, and would always tell me how awful the reservation was. And of course, as a small child growing up in an all-white community, I never even knew what that meant. What is a reservation? I see. So you didn't even know what she was talking about. No, not at all. Um, where we grew up, there were no other Indians. 
So I didn't have my image reflected back to me any place, in school, at, at any, um, any store, any teacher, certainly no, no other children other than my brother. So I just remember as a little child feeling, always feeling very alone. And I could see very early on I didn't look like anybody. Um, and, you know, kids are, you know, kids are kids. Um, for the most part, when I was really small, I don't remember any difficulty with kids until we became teenagers. And then the difference um, started being more apparent. And kids have the, you know, the learned behavior of the environment that they're in. And that's when I was really um, had a lot of discrimination, racist things said to me and such. I acted as if no one ever did anything to me. I kept that front of everything's fine, everything's okay, and then somebody would in passing, you know, do that war hoop, you know, that woo-woo to me. There are many times I'd walk down the street of our town and, um, a carload of boys would go by and they'd yell at me, call me a squaw, call me a whore. Um, and I was always afraid that they would you know, grab me and you know, take me off in their car. Um, I experienced a lot of that, but I didn't tell anybody. So what I wanted to really talk about, though, is um, I remember the day that I was placed with my adoptive family. I carried within me all these years this blip it would only be for a second or two, and I would see this little brown girl being picked up and placed in a truck. What I learned was these blips that I had were actual memories. So I recall being lifted and placed in a red truck between two people, and what stood out for me when I finally really unearthed that recall what I remembered was a white arm with circles in it, and as a child, I guess. The only way I could put that place that was circles when it was really pores in the skin. And um, a therapist said to me, "Well, that's because prior to that time you were held with brown arms, hmm. and white skin and brown skin is different." And when she said that, it was as if my brain just kind of let loose of all the other things that were so profoundly different from the from the moment I was in that truck everything smelled odd and I, I have so many um, pictures in my mind and I recall everything in the dashboard I mean the the detail that I have from that is is I'm 61 years old that was when I was 18 months old and I if I could draw or paint I could do it from memory but what is interesting about this is that I don't re remember it in the first person. I remember it, me watching this little brown girl. And you, you probably know this, Sandy, but you know, one of the markers of trauma is what we call dissociation, where yep. people literally have the experience of watching themselves. Mm -hmm. And it speaks, to, it speaks to the exact thing you're describing, which is sort of deer in the headlights, yep. shock. Yeah. I wanted to make sure I included that part of my story because I want... Um, to convey that um, this well-intended um, process of helping these children who grew up in poverty, as they were looking at us like that, uh, they really, uh, taking a child from their family 
regardless of their economic standing, is so much more devastating than the poverty that you're in. And I always joke and laugh and say, how come um, country western singers can talk about that and sing about that and everybody thinks it's remarkable that they were so poor they didn't even know it. But how come we couldn't be so poor and not even know it? What do you mean not even know it? Well, I just remember back in the 70s is when a lot of country western stars started bringing out their autobiographies. Dolly Parton and Loretta Lynn and a lot of the people who grew up in the mountains and they'd say, we were so poor we didn't even know it. And society would hear that and look at that and just say, well, isn't that just something that they experienced that and still came out the way they were. And so it just is interesting that brown is brown poverty then different than white poverty? I see. So it's such a double standard. It's like, why didn't, mm-hmm. why didn't they give you the chance to be poor? Yeah. And, and, and be, resi- and be resilient the way the country Western singers were. Exactly. Like how, how is that any different for us? Poverty is never comfortable, but you at least have your family. And what I also don't understand is um, why the churches, when they saw that families were struggling, because it was a time on the reservations during the 40s, 50s, and 60s, there were no jobs, very, very few jobs. There wasn't opportunity. We didn't have the programs and resources that we have today. So we had homes with you know, 15 people in it and maybe two bedrooms. Um, there was no running water. There was not electricity. And so we were looked upon then as not being able to provide for our children. So what I don't understand is how come the churches didn't say, how about we gather all the men in the church and we put on an extra room in this house or we figure out how to put electricity in this home or how do we dig a well so this family can um, have running water. That never happened. I keep asking if that happened and I don't hear any stories that it happened. But instead they took the children. Right. So the town that I spent the majority of my growing up years, I guess, um, I lived in the country in a small town of about 4,000 people. Uh, from the time I was 10 till I graduated high school. And that was an exceptionally difficult time as well because I was the only brown girl in this town. Unbeknownst to me, the town that I lived in is about 30 miles from a reservation. And I don't know if my adoptive mom knew that, but we certainly didn't go. She made no effort to connect me with... um, other Indian people, uh, and she had a very biased view of who Indian people were. She saw us as a pagan people who um, our dire living conditions were because of we weren't Christians. She really believed that. So I was indoctrinated over and over that I was, you know, saved and needed to be further saved my soul, and... um, that I should be fortunate that I had the life I had. She'd say, don't grow up to be a good-for-nothing Indian. Don't grow up to be a good-for-nothing drunken Indian. You're so ungrateful. You are so selfish. If I didn't want to eat my food, she'd say, "Um, any Indian on the reservation would be happy to eat the scraps off your plate. She would say things like, when people would see me, you know, I was certainly not 
for certainly didn't look like her, and uh, she would always say, "Oh, you sh yes, she's adopted. You should have seen which where we got her from," and she would always send this message of, you know, she rescued me. I always felt like she was talking about a dog she rescued. And I always felt a lot of shame. I didn't know what it was. I mean, I didn't know how to identify that till I was, you know, in my 30s. But as a child, I just remember the breath left me and that this sting in my body and my, um, I remember just feeling hot rushes through my body. And now that I know that's shame, I, f I learned that later. So the message I got was that being in being an Indian was a bad thing, but I felt I still felt secretly proud that I was Indian. So I had that duality going on, but shame on both ends because I was ashamed that I didn't know how to say or be Indian. Yeah. And the sad the other sad part of that is um, she was uh, sexually abusive to me, uh, physically abusive, emotionally abusive. So, and then the spiritual abuse. So, from the day that I was placed in the red truck, I always said I didn't feel completely safe in my body and in myself until um, about age 35 when I left my married, 13 year marriage. I remember I shut the door and I locked it the first night my kids and I spent a night alone in my new apartment. And it hit me that nobody can come through the door unless I say. And I was 35. And so I lived in that hypervigilance, stressed out trauma because up until that point too, based on what I learned as a child, I always surrounded myself with um, people who would, you know, hurt me again. Um, I formed a partnership with my in my marriage of. Um, the same thing that I basically married my mom in male form. So the the patterns that happen in your your life are just um, fascinating and incredibly sad at the same time that you repeat and repeat and repeat until you finally realize that you have control and you don't have to live like that any longer. That was right right after that February of '88 when I left my marriage. It was July of that year that I went home and met my Indian family for the first time. So tell me about that. How had you even first found them? How did you make that contact? Um, what happened was after I'd left my marriage, I went into an incest survivors group. And one week we had this assignment that we were to bring something of emotional significance to the group. And so I come home and went, what the hell does emotional significance even mean? I mean, I just barely figured out serenity. You know, I had to look that up. So I procrastinated to the very last minute. Now, I had just moved a few months prior, so I still had boxes all over. And it was like two hours before I had to leave for this uh, group, and I started going through boxes and papers and thinking I pulled out all kinds of like birth certificates of my kids, my discharge papers from the Navy, uh, I was like, and I just remember thinking what the hell does they mean? And finally I stumble upon this envelope that says Sandy's adoption papers on it oh. and it's sealed. 
Oh, my goodness. So my adopted mom had given that to me, but I did what I've done all my life prior to then is I just find a place to put it because there are no answers. I don't know how to have the conversation. So it was just in with these other papers. So for some, you know, it was just divine intervention. I grabbed that envelope and ran off to group. But when I got there, I felt really bad because I had no idea what was really in it. Right. <laughs> and when all the other women, you know, like there's seven of us, and like I think three or four women went before me, and they put all this thought into their object that they brought, and they had story, and they cried, and everybody was talking to them, feedback, and I'm like, oh, my God, you know, I just... I screwed this up. So it came turn my turn, and um, I just said, well, I just have to tell you I'm really sorry. I didn't do the assignment, and I feel really bad because everyone has done all this work, and I've done nothing, and I'm sorry. And the counselor was sitting, like, directly across from me. She says, well, what is it? And I go, it's my adoption papers. And I looked. I remember watching her one eyebrow just kind of, go bing. Now when I look at that, she's probably thinking, oh my God, bingo, we're going to really go to <laughs> a therapist's dream here. She's going to unlock something. And So I start reading it. And it had all this legal information about my uh, birth mom, a little tiny bit of her, then about my adoptive parents, where I'd lived the last six months, and all this legal stuff. And then at the very close to the bottom, it says, Sandra is a child of the and it typed in Indian in italics, race. And I remember reading that and, and it just stung. I remember feeling like I was like a pedigree dog or something or a horse, the way this document is worded. And that's when like this little blip started coming and other blips and things trying to surface. and. Finally, uh, the therapist says, Sandy, what a, tell us what's going on. And I remember looking up and it had the, having the distinct feeling, uh, and I almost said, well, haven't you been listening? Because I actually thought I was talking, but I was having the conversation inside of me because I was so used to having that kind of conversation with just me. And I just blurted out profanities. And I, it just kind of all came out at once, and I felt like I was puking up years of toxicity and took the papers and threw them and, and uh, cried and cried and cried. And what I realized was there was another incident that had occurred when I was 11 years old. Um, one of the rages that my mother had, and she was yelling up, you're so ungrateful, you're so selfish. I can't believe that I... Uh, adopted you. I should have just left you on the reservation. And I remember thinking, I wish you would have left me on the reservation too, whatever the reservation was. And um, that was the last time I had cried about being Indian that I let her make me cry. Because I remember thinking, you will never make me cry about this again. And so I had all those tears from the time I was 11 to the time I was 35. Mm. So after that session, I went home and took like a three-hour nap. <laughs> I woke up and went, I think I have probate papers somewhere. And I had not even thought about those because, again, 
the fear and the thought of going that avenue, I had, t I had tucked that away as well and totally forgot that I had probate papers that would tell my siblings and my mother uh, because of land through her that I had inherited. So I looked on there, got that out, and by the next days wrote a letter to my um, what I saw was my oldest sister and said that I'd like to meet them. If about a, uh, two months after that, a friend of mine said she was going to go to Colorado, and did I want to go with her? And I said, yes, could we go via South Dakota? And uh, I'd like to meet my family. So we went to, um, to South Dakota, and that was in July of 1988. But it all, I, would, I don't know that I would have been able to make that journey had I not unlocked some of that other stuff first. And so um, that's another very long story of that day, but it was wonderful. My family remembered me. Um, they told me what little bit of stories they could tell of me and my, exist my 18 months in existence. Um, one of my uncles said, I remember the day the social worker came and got you. We were all sitting around in front of the house, um, and she just drove in the driveway and scooped you up and took you. And I thought about how hard that must have been for them as men to not be able to protect their their young relative because they would have been arrested and that wouldn't have solved anything. It wouldn't have kept me with them. But that's how much power uh, the government had over our people at that time. So when I came back, and as with any adoptee that goes back, uh, we remind those who were left behind of that day that we were taken. And some, oftentimes that's a traumatic memory for everyone. I hadn't thought of that before. I see that during the reconnection, part of what the adoptee has to know is that the your family is reliving a trauma just in seeing you again. Right, and they're not even, the family's typically not even aware of it, especially our birth mothers, because um, the older birth mothers were often coerced f as to give up their babies from birth. And that's why it is really helpful to have, you know, to talk to someone and to have the family be able to talk to someone as well to navigate through all those emotions. So you come and they tell you these stories and you spoke earlier about the longing to see yourself reflected in other people, to see who you look like. Uh -huh. <laughs> Do you, did you look like your mom? Yeah, I feel like I look like her. And other people have said I look like her. Um, I have different relatives that would just take one look at me and go, yeah, of course you're Nina's daughter. Um, I think my sister looks more like her. But what is interesting is... Uh, the day that I went home, when we came back from Colorado, we went through South Dakota, and I found my brother. And the very first time I saw him, I remember the first thing I said to him is, oh, I said, I really like your smile. And uh, he hugged me, and he said, hi, sister. And when um, I left, I remember writing in my journal, I found it much later, that I wrote that I felt like I saw myself for the first time when I met my brother. Mm. So I can imagine, Sandy, that now you're in this complicated situation, which is that you've grown up with white missionary parents who told you that they had rescued you from the reservation where you surely wouldn't have survived. 
but all the time you feel so different and it's not being spoken about. And mm-hmm. now you're reconnecting with your biological family and the community, but you haven't grown up with them. And so you don't know them very well. Was it possible to to feel a sense of belonging there again? Or did it, that feel, was that retrievable in the end or not? For me, for me, it was um, just even driving onto the reservation. I remember getting excited and feeling excited in my body. I remember feeling like I was actually breathing, that there wasn't any obstruction in my nose. I don't know how else to describe it. It just felt like, like I was breathing. And when I was driving around before I even met everyone, I um, noticed the women that I was shaped like them. And just even that alone, just having that was an incredible feeling of, oh my God, I'm not so weird. I'm not so odd. And the second time I went home to Rosebud, a friend of mine from Wisconsin came with me and we stayed at my aunt's house. And I remember we had uh, laying in the bedroom at night and I said, how come I feel so comfortable here? Why is that? I don't even know these people. And my friend says, they're your family, Sandy. They're your blood. And I was like, okay. I didn't kind of, I didn't get it then, but I really get it today. What do you get today that you didn't get then? That DNA knows no geographic boundaries. It doesn't have any, that is stronger than anything. We have that spiritual connection to each other. I don't know how it exists in other people, but I can only speak to us as Indian people. That we have that spiritual umbilical cord. It can't be cut. And while I may not have grown there, it's in me. And when I, in my recovery and in coming into knowing who I am, by going to ceremonies, by being part of social gatherings, by just being immersed in community, that healing and who I am as Sandy, as a Sichangu, Lakota, Wiyan, as a, as a woman from the land of the burnt thigh, that comes out because it's in me. It's, it's who I am. I'm not where I grew up because I learned a lot there but it's not me. I've reaped ben- some benefits, not a whole lot, but I've reaped a few benefits, but nothing that completed me in my heart and in my soul. That came and comes from uh, knowing who I am, knowing where I come from, and that comes from being around my people. And so the, the, the me that you see today um, is, is Indian. And it, my, some people might even say, well, Sandy, you feel this way because you had such a horrible upbringing. Of course you would connect to the family back home. And, and I don't believe that that's true at all. I don't think that that longing or that desire has anything to do with whether you were abused or not. Um, It just has to be with that's your origin. If you are loved and know you are loved unconditionally and you still have that longing, all that says is that you need to know who you are and where you come from. Yes, I remember um, 
an interview I did on on this show uh, years ago with a friend of mine, actually, who's adopted, and, and him saying, you know, I think so often adoptive families want to believe that if they love this child so wholeheartedly, that there won't be a need to heal from the rupture of the loss of their biological family. They can, sort of that love is enough to take care of all that. And and him saying so clearly, that's not the case. There's been a terrible loss regardless. And it, it isn't the adoptive family's fault. No. But the child the child is always gonna wonder where they came from and need and need to have those questions answered and it isn't a disloyalty to the adoptive family. It's completely not a disloyalty and I'm not sure who started that lie, but it's a both it's just a lie of one of the major things we have to understand is is everyone has that right to know who they are and where they come from. I have to always just go back to it. it's not about whether you're loved or not. We've learned that deep grief can exist in the midst of love. And it is even more insidious when you're in the midst of this great love that you can't express that you have this emptiness. Exactly. You know, it's in a way it's almost easier for someone who grew up in an abusive home like me. I could just say, yeah, forget you. I don't have to take care of you. You never took care of me, so I'm out of here. You know, but for someone who has a really connected relationship with their parent, adoptive parent, and their parents having a difficulty with the fact that the child needs to know where they come from, and, and we're using the word child, <clears throat> it's often the adult. They're, it's usually when they're an adult that they, they want to pursue that. So, um, if we had started out telling adoptive parents that this would occur, it would have been much easier. Now we're all the way down the road and we have to undo the lie and remind people about the truth of relationships and the importance of connections. That was part one of my conversation with TRC Commissioner Sandy Whitehawk. Next week in part two, we'll be talking about how trauma gets passed down from generation to generation and how a community can begin to recover. If you like this show and want to stay connected to these issues, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Safe Space Radio. And you can find us on the web at safespaceradio.com and listen to all of our past shows, including the past three weeks shows about Wabanaki history, the TRC itself, and the work of breaking silence in order to heal. While you're there, please subscribe to our email list to find out about each week's new show as soon as it's released. My thanks to Gabe Graben for producing the show and to Jim Russell for being our editorial advisor. Coming up next is Speak Freely.